world-class athletes, great coaches, what do they do when they're at their best? We don't take no for an answer. We don't take no for an answer. We don't take no for an answer. Leave no doubt tonight. Leave no doubt tonight. No doubt. We're going to get him on the run, boys. Once we get him on the run, we're going to keep him on the run. And then we're going to go, 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 go. And we're not going to stop until we get across that goal line. Now, you kids are probably saying to yourselves, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the world by the tail and wrap it around and pull it down and put it in my pocket. back everybody to the art of coaching podcast appreciate you guys being here uh today we have davis conley coach davis conley on with us and davis is an interesting case study because i and this is a bit personal to me but when i was a graduate assistant i always thought it was interesting that whenever you listen to other podcasts you would always hear about just highly established people in the field and you'd hear their take which makes sense right like you get a chance to learn what some of the best in the field are doing you get a chance to really kind of almost pick their brain by being a fly in the wall. But I always thought what was interesting is we didn't hear a lot from different younger coaches in the field, people that were struggling with a lot of different things, people that, you know, were, were dealing with sometimes shoddy internships, sometimes trying to figure out the path on their own. There are some graduate assistantships that do a really, really good job. There are some that just kind of leave the coach to figure it out for themselves. And I always thought, for as much as we like to talk about the state of the field, as much as we like to go on and on about those topics, shouldn't we be getting insider information from the people that are kind of going through it at the ground level as well? So Davis Conley was one of the, you know, him being a graduate assistant currently at, and correct me if I'm wrong here, coach, Northern State University, correct? In Aberdeen, South Dakota? Yes, sir. That's what it is. I wanted to get a graduate assistant coach on here to kind of talk about some things that that they're doing things that they've struggled with. And the point is, is not only to reach out to other younger coaches listening to this, because again, this isn't just a coaching podcast, it's management. Uh, we'll talk about business topics, training topics, but I think it's going to be interesting for the more veteran coaches listening in on this as well, to get the perspective uh, of, of what coaches kind of just starting out on their path or kind of in the middle of their path are dealing with as the climate of s continues to change. Um, so what we're really going to dive into at first is some of the main topics are uh, we're going to talk about the development of interns and why that's so important, especially to Coach Conley, but also the field. And then understanding what is most important to learn in your career, things that Coach Conley kind of learned he had to filter out because it can be easy to get trapped into information overload. It can get uh, kind of dicey and think that you've got to be an expert in so many different things. And the irony is that's such an illusion because then you lose track of some of the things that can truly make you great as you start to filter it down. And then he also wants to discuss taking risks and the value of doing that within uh, improving your network. And I've got some surprise questions for him as well, but we're going to welcome him onto the show and get him going. Coach Conley, appreciate you coming on. Hey coach, thanks for having me. Anything that I missed there that you kind of, that, that you think is is critical for folks to know about you? Kind of, do you want to give them a, a bio in one minute or less briefly as some of the main points? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I'm no different than the rest. Uh, I've been privileged to work with some great mentors. Uh, I did some internships when I was in my undergrad at LaGrange College, um, and I've just been going through the game like a lot of other people. But when I saw the opportunity to come on your 
podcast and maybe help out some people that could be struggling with uh, with things that I don't think are necessarily unique to other strength coaches, but could just be something they need to hear at the right time. And and uh, I really appreciate you having me on here. Oh, my pleasure. Now, guys, as always, none of this is scripted. You know, we've talked about a couple of things that topics that he just wants to riff on. And there's going to be some rapid fire stuff in here mixed in. But I do want to start with a, kind of a hot button topic. There's a lot of discussion about internships these days, and I, I can relate. I mean, I know that there were opportunities that, you know, I thought I was a shoe in for that by the time you applied, you know, they were closed or there were internships where you showed up and, and there was no structured program. And there were some others that were that were really great, you know, but what do you think, you know, when you talk about the development of interns and, and don't be you don't need to be humble here. Everybody knows that you're a humble guy and that coaches inherently want to help and want to learn. But I want to get into the grid of where do you think we are going wrong with internships right now? And more importantly, what can be done about it? And how are you trying to adapt that? Like, what are you trying to give interns that either you had and you really valued or that you didn't have and you wish you would have? Yeah. So I, I did my first internship after my sophomore year of college under Coach Ed Ellis at Central Florida. He's now at, at Georgia. And I was just a, a business major and was interested on getting in the business side of fitness. Um, so I, I shot him an email because I'm from the Orlando area. And he surprisingly emailed me back right away and said I could come in for an interview over winter break for, uh, for an internship during the summer. And I, luckily, I landed that. And I would say it was a pretty laid back internship, especially compared to the other ones that I've done. Um, we did not do much coaching. That was kind of their policy. You know, every coach has a different one on that. So I can't blame them for that. Uh, it was just more of some introduction on exercises, uh, and, but kind of got to know some really good guys down there and got to meet some other interns. Uh, but and then the, I think it definitely prepared me for the next summer when I worked under Coach Jason Spray at Middle Tennessee, which was the opposite. They had a really small staff. Middle Tennessee is greatly, you know, it, it had no funding for strength and conditioning. I mean, the most those guys were getting that summer was uh, some chocolate milk and maybe a, a Walmart granola bar. And so that was, I was thrown right in the fire. And I remember my first day just going, I've done a dumbbell row a million times and I have no idea how to tell someone to do that. And I just thought that was unreal and how unprepared I, I was, even though I thought I was overly prepared because I've done one internship. And so it took about two weeks of Coach Spray ripping into me uh, and humbling me greatly. And then I kind of figured out what it was, or at least I thought I figured it out what it might be all about. And, but I would say that was a great stepping stone going into the, the summer after I graduated at South Carolina, because um, working under Coach Dillman and and Coach Josh, Josh Lawson and uh, Nate York and Chase Dodd, it was just, it was, that was great. I felt really prepared and I learned so much through them because they just, they taught you the basics of just coaching. You know, don't worry about programming and periodization. And, and you know, it's good to read. It's, uh, that's something we have to continue to keep doing, but that's not what your main, if you can, you can read all the books in the world, but if you can't run a warm up, how effective are you going to be young in your career? Um, yeah, no doubt. So, yeah, I, I think that was the biggest thing was just learning how to and learning how to communicate with all types of athletes. Yeah. You know? But when you reflect when you reflect on that though, like what were the structures that were in place? Like what it was intern was it like intern development Wednesday? Did you do that on a Wednesday? Did they give you what level of accountability was there? Like for example, when I was at Nebraska, I remember one thing that I valued tremendously is they gave us a whole packet of things that we really needed to learn and understand about their methodology. Right? We needed to understand the hang clean progression. 
I can still recite that. You know, why do we do the hang clean? All these things. And eventually what that built towards coach is we had to go through um, and, and the entire strength staff would stand in front of you and they would just fire questions at you. I mean, rapid fire. Tell us the hang clean progression. Why do we do medicine ball training? What are the nine areas of, of you know, torso training? You know, and if you couldn't rip those things off, you were going to get a very limited opportunity to be able to coach or support on the floor. Now, everybody's got their own story of those things. But for you, what are some specific ways that you think they held you accountable that, that were really helpful? And not only that, what would you have done? Like, what, what have you carried over now to do with your interns? Like, when you say intern development, you know, you, you, it's really easy to think, okay, we got everybody in a room. We're talking about a topic. Sometimes you get an article out and you discuss and you debate. But like you said, that's not really all, all development. Like you've got to get up and you've got to interact, right? And that's a problem that most coaches have. Like you mentioned that, not being able to interact. So what were some things that they did to put you on the spot, to, to hold you accountable? What were evaluations that you went through when you were, when you were developing? So I, at Central Florida, we had kind of like what you just said, like a technique Wednesday deal where – um, you know, and, and you had to get up and present, you were given a, a, an exercise that day. I mean, anywhere from a, a bench press to a kettlebell swing, and you had to present in front of just your peers. And that was, that was a little silly at times. Um, it just it eventually, I, I don't think that was the most effective way um, for me, at least. Uh, then uh, Why not? Just because it, it wasn't taken as seriously as it should have. It was just more of looking, I, I thought it looked at more of just th- something to pass the time by. Um, you know, I, I, when I was just talking to like five or six interns that I worked with every day, I didn't feel necessarily the pressure, like the eyes weren't on you to lead them into the charge, kind of like a, you know, for compared to when I was at South Carolina and Coach Dillman had his eyes on you at all times. And so you were given position groups based off your experience. And, so I worked at the defensive line, and that was the that was the toughest group on campus by far. Um, and Coach Dillman every day would I, I knew he was watching everything that was going on, and he especially gave me some tougher guys. And you either were going to sink or swim. And how you you got those guys to respond was how how effective and how much more um, how many more tasks you were going to get, how much more responsibility you were going to get, how much more you're going to stand out. And I thought that was- what did they define real quick? Just, you know, cause we want to keep this podcast as conversational as possible. What, what did you define? Like if somebody's hearing you, uh, what you just said, which was excellent, uh, how do you define tough guys or how did coach Dillman define tough guys? Cause I think that's something that has a fair amount of ambiguity to it. Like sometimes people think an athlete is quote unquote tough if they ask why, right. That's something you see a lot like, Oh, you know, they're not doing what they're told. They're questioning my authority, you know, and coaches have a problem of their own with kind of authority. I, I think there's a litany of strength coaches out there that fancy themselves as like military experts, which is kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if that's my idea of, of, of true leadership in regards to coaches trying to act like they're military. Military for sure is leadership, but I don't think our role is necessarily as drill sergeants. I also don't think that our role is to coddle people and love them up. Um, I think that coaches have to be adaptable, but um, when, when you get somebody and they say, this is a tough athlete or this guy's not bought in, what does that look like to you? Be as specific as possible if you can for people that are listening so that they have an idea of what your take is on that. They'll value that. So it was a, it was a guy, right? I would say is the guys right off the bat when you could tell the last thing they wanted to do was be there. Um, so their, their body language is bad. 
uh, the effort was terrible. Their attention to detail, you know, you get it. It's 630 in the morning. You've been doing this all summer. You probably could care less about doing an A skip right now. But when 99% of the other guys are doing it correctly, and there's always the same group of five that are always doing it wrong, it's because there's some, I, I'm doing air quotes with this, but our NFL talent caliber guys, um, you know, he and they didn't like any kind of negative attention. And as soon as they got that negative attention, that's when they wanted to really shut down. And that's where I had to find the tough line of, you know, I want to I want to hold you accountable, but at the same time, I've got to reel you in for the day because he's gonna he's gonna get on you. But I've got to I've got to make sure that I'm I'm coming in playing kind of good cop, you know, trying to get them to keep going through it, even though it's something as simple as a warm up and it felt silly at times. But you know, there was also times where I had to be the bad cop and they would hate that. But eventually, I think they got the more they realized they could trust me and I really did have their back. And I think that's huge. Just in, in anything you do, business, coaching, whatever, is that is once you can build that trust with any kind of athlete showing that you're just not there so you can get some kind of reference or something, that's when you've really got something special. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, our, uh, our field tends to try to, you know, if they have somebody that isn't quote unquote bought in and they're trying to get them on the same page, we have an interesting way of typically going about it. You know, coaches typically, I find, go right into rational persuasion. This is why you should be doing this. This is what it does for you. You know, they kind of start with why. I remember when that book by Simon Sinek came out, I feel like coaches just absorbed that. And, and, and some of them used it, some of them didn't, but some went overboard with it. You know, and then if that didn't work, they started to use legitimating tactics. Like these are the rules, you better fall in line, you know, or they use pressure tactics. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. I'm going to let coach know. And it's interesting. It's a big reason why we discuss those, those influence tactics in my course on undercoaching.com because what we found is people would periodize for their programming, uh, but coaches wouldn't periodize like for their communication. And so, you know, trying to figure out like, okay, when I evaluate myself as a coach, if an athlete's not listening, is it because of me? So in the course, we ended up kind of matching up archetypes with uh, influence tactics and trying to say, all right, well, if all I'm doing is giving, you know, communicating in one of three of these different categories and there's, you know, nine to 11 different other uh, influence tactics from a communication standpoint I could have used, am I being effective? And those weren't terms that, you know, just were dreamt up one day that comes from organizational leadership and research done in organizational uh, behavior. Uh, and there's so much out there on that, but I find it fascinating that we can periodize for exercises, but so many coaches, when they find a quote unquote difficult athlete, they don't ever think like, Oh, is it me? Like, you know, yeah, that athlete might be a pain in the butt sometimes, but like, what am I doing? Like, and it sounds like you guys worked out a little bit of a system, whether it's good cop, bad cop. I know some people have used coercion tactics in the past where you can get, uh, that was a favorite of Alex Ferguson's for Manchester United. He would get other veteran players or people that had won championships kind of to coerce or, or influence the younger players that, you know, probably didn't have the championship focus that they needed to get those things on board um, and say, hey, you know, you need to influence these guys. It's not all down to me. It's up to you. And I don't know that we do that enough. I think that we always try to take the charge and, and do these things. But eventually, if an athlete's with you for four years, shoot, even if some athletes are with you for four weeks, they're bound to get tired of us. We're always out in front of them. Yeah. You know, that kind of leads into one more thing I wanted to ask you, because when we look at, you know, things that coaches in the field struggle with, I think that coach development, frankly, is in a bad place. That's just my opinion. I think a lot of coaches just copycat either their mentors or I think that coaches uh, you know, coach people the way they want to be coached. I, it doesn't seem like I'm alone in that assertion as there's research to 
that kind of says the same thing on coach development, but what are three things that you think we do to ourselves where we self-sabotage uh, like ourselves, whether we're young, you know, what have you, whether, whether even more veteran coaches that you maybe heard about or, or had discussions with, like, where do you think coaches of all kinds go wrong or struggle with most right now and why? And just, just find three areas. What do you think? I, I, you know, I would say the first one, and I, it starts off a little broad, but I can get real specific. It's, it's the ego of being a coach and what that truly means. It's, and what I mean by that is I look at specifically being a strength coach, but being a coach in general, you're a service provider. You're not a dictator. Um, and, so, and so with that is that you have to, to understand no matter what level you are, division one, two, three, private sector, whatever, you're, you're providing a service to this, this athlete that is building, it is a part of their overall development, not as just an athlete, but a, a, as a human. And so when you're, when you're working with that, you have to understand there's so many different aspects that go into it. And when I look at it here at Northern State, uh, you know, in, in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota, a really good Division II school, is when kids might be going through certain things that I can't look, everything is, is their fault. And, and that's one thing I think we do a good job here is Coach Fritz, my boss, who does an outstanding job here, is, is that he is a big fan of extreme ownership and that we constantly evaluate ourselves first and how we're communicating and how we're doing things with that. And if we're put, making sure we're putting things in the right perspective moving forward. Um, number two, I'd say, I would say constantly trying to vary things way too much is a big issue. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of coaches now are using the build in the basics term. And I think you can stretch that to everything. And because that, that goes into no matter what you do, whether that's that is your programming, just doing the basics really well, being the best beginner coach possible, or even just how you're communicating. Make sure you're great at communicating with all types of athletes. Whether how do you evaluate that? How do you guys evaluate whether you're great at communicating with an athlete? Because and this is where I'm going with that. There's, you know, what they talk about is there's two types of basically adherence. Let's call it adherence, right? They, if somebody, somebody just carrying forth with the task that you ask them to perform, right? Like that's, that's task-based like kind of cohesion. They're, they're, they're doing what they're told, yes, sir. but then there's a relation element to that too, right? Like not only doing what you're told, but like feeling good about that and the overall mission. Would you say it's accurate or inaccurate that, you know, do you think a lot of coaches see an athlete do something as they're told to do and think, all right, like, I'm, I'm in control. They're doing as I need to. Or do you think that maybe they're missing the boat? And it's a bit of a leading question because I think most people listening know the answer to this. Just because somebody does something, does that mean they're bought in? No, not at all. Uh, I, I think it's you can tell by the way they walk into the room. If they're smiling, if they're happy to see you, if they come around in their extra time, if they, they stick around and want to – and it doesn't have to be about you know lifting or anything else, like just talking to them in general. And that's – that's one thing I'd say I was challenged with this year is, you know, I, I've worked with the baseballs and the footballs almost in my the short time I've been a strength coach, but I, I got a cross country team this year and I absolutely love, have loved my experience with them because it's a different atmosphere. But I, I kind of, that I went through a big process in my mind of I'm going to have to take a step back and just, it's a little more of a relaxed environment, but they work their butts off. And I can tell because they come in with a smiling face, they love to lift. You know, it just kind of throwing this in there. We're hitting heavy numbers six days before conference, and they love every bit of it. And they're saying they feel great, and they're they're constantly talking. 
talking to me about outside things, you know, outside of the weight room. And I went to my first cross country meet. I, if you had told me that five years ago that I was going to cross country meets, I told you you're crazy. But and I and I love being out there seeing them, them do that. So I think you can really tell by body language and how they communicate with you. It just because if you think people are just doing task, um, you know, it, I think I think if you grow up in a good home and your neighbor asked you to do something, you would go do it for them. But that doesn't mean you just completely respect your neighbor. You were just brought up right. But if if you can get it to like a, I guess a parent, you know, a parent relationship where you, you know, when your parent tells you to do something or they get on to you about something, it really affects you. And that's something I try to have with that, with every athlete that I can is when I speak, it actually means something to them, whether it be about weightlifting or anything else, is that if I can build that kind of relationship, that we're going to have some form of success. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I mean, coaching is a dyadic relationship, right? It's a partnership. I think people miss that sometimes. Uh, we all have. And so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly no no stranger to that as well. You know, especially when I was a younger coach, I think. when I, How old are you, coach? I'm only 24. Yeah, when I was 25, 24, 25, like I was still very much in a position where, I, you know, I, I was blessed that I had the opportunity to work with pro athletes, but I also knew that these guys were probably looking at me being like, who is this dude? Like, why is some young guy coaching me? Right. And so like, I'd always try to kind of prove how smart I was. I talked to them in, in high level vernacular, this, that, because there was my own insecurity, not a whole lot of self-awareness in that regard. Well, I had self-awareness, but the main thing was I wanted them to feel confident in my ability as a coach. And well, that's not really a partnership, right? That's me kind of using my own insecurities to kind of lead the interaction and the communication where a true dyadic relationship is saying, Hey, coaching's a social process. We're in this together. Like, yeah, there's going to be some times where you're going to have to do things you don't want to do, man. Uh, but there's times where like, I need your input as well. Right. And that feeds self-determination theory and all those things. So, all right, we've talked about one thing we think coaches struggle with. And I think a lot of people would be on board with communication and trying to figure out how to better evaluate, you know, how, how we are as coaches. And, and that's something that I challenge you guys listening. If you are right now, uh, I have a resource on my site that is a coach evaluation guide, session evaluation guide. And it asks a lot of those questions, you know, like what were the objectives of the session? Uh, how did you communicate? What coaching styles were used? Why did you use those styles? What was the effect of it? What did the, you know, and, and it just kind of breaks that down. So um, if you guys are in the course bought in, I'd, I'd encourage you to look at that in the bonus materials. And if not, um, let me know or reach out uh, to team at Art of Coaching and, and I'm happy to, to uh, shoot that your way. So that's one topic. What's another thing you think the field is struggling most with right now? I would say the ability or the, the willingness to take risk. Um, we, we get so caught up in, in wanting to be comfortable, whether that be the, uh, the environment you work in or you know, how, how you operate as a coach. And, I, and I, my example is when I, when I went to interview for my internship at South Carolina, I, I was, in my mind, I was going for a grad assistant interview. I thought I've, I've done two internships. I got to be the best intern in the country. Um, and I was humbled immediately when I sat down with Coach David Feely, and he made sure that I understood about this game and how I'm being extremely arrogant about that. And I and I will never forget that interview for the rest of my life. And I told him, what I were said, some of the things he asked you in the interview, just so people can get a feel for it. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily the questions. It was just it was more of of how he responded and the fire he spoke with about just understanding that just because you've done a couple things that do, that doesn't mean anything there's a there's a, a 
multitude of other interns out there. And that just because you, you've done something in one place doesn't prove anything to anyone else. And so if you're if you're if you care enough and you're going to continue to work hard enough to the right people, then you can prove that you can earn their respect as well. And so he told me that he was going to offer me an internship job. And he said he was going to call me Friday at noon. And he said, you're either going to say, hell yeah, let's do it. Or you're going to say, no, you know, this isn't for me because my concern was, you know, was I going to be able to do a non-paid internship again now, this time with a degree? Um, and so when he called Friday at noon, I had already made up my mind 100 percent that that was going to be the best decision. And I completely, you know, I, I, when I look back at the decision now, I, I don't think I could have made a better one for that time. Um, so and I and that was a, that was a risk that could have worked out terribly, uh, you know, and, you know, and there was a point where I almost ran out of money. And I, you know, I thought I was going to have to go work in a completely different field. Um, so, it, it, but I'm glad I went through it because I, I learned some things outside about myself that weren't necessarily just strength and conditioning related. And I worked with some really good people that taught me that, that it wasn't just my self-discovery. It was learning from other people who had been through other, uh, those things as well and, and having those examples around you to push, push you through. And if you don't take risk in any other way, you're really just not going to learn. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thing. I mean, our field, everybody listening to this, that's a strength coach in, in, in any industry, really, because I think we think the no money thing is kind of our own issue, right? People are like, oh, I've done this many internships. I can't get a job. Da, da, da. Well, like, how do you think med students and law students feel, right? Like they come out with significant amount of debt. It's not just us, right? Like, it, and we can all share our story. I remember when I was interning at Nebraska or volunteering there. Like I had a Blazer ZR2 that was used. The front window was busted. I was driving down. I think I've told this story once before. I'm driving down. It's like January, you know, in in Nebraska. I got to drive 45 minutes to get there. I slept in my car during lunch because at night I would it would take me a few hours to get home with rush hour traffic. I'd go to a lifetime fitness and like practice the things that I learned that night, that day or what have you. Go to bed, wake up at 4.30 to make the hour drive down there again like everybody's got those stories and, and it's not like a competition who's was worse, who was better. But I think sometimes we also kind of feel a little sorry for ourselves. You know what I mean? Like it's, Oh, uh, we don't have money. We did this. We're like, we're kind of almost proud in our humility. That's one thing I've seen, I've seen in strength and conditioning is, you know, a lot of humble folks in this field and humility is a key virtue in leadership, but we've gotten to the point now where it's almost kind of become martyrdom. Like everybody wants to be prideful on how humble they are. You know, like one example is, I know somebody that every five seconds is saying, oh, I'm the dumbest person in the room. I'm the dumbest. No, you're not the dumbest person in the room. The person's extremely intelligent. And there comes to a point where it's like when everybody in that room knows that that dude or, or that woman is smart as heck, but they keep saying they're the dumbest person in the room, you start thinking like, all right, dude, you know what I mean? We get it. Like, yeah. you're not, you're not dumb or what. And, and same thing. I mean, coaches are like, oh, you know, I've sacrificed this and embrace the grind. It's kind of like, all right. So did everybody. Don't, don't, <laughs> you, you take it. It's, it's ironic because like people are prideful in how humble they are, you know? And, and I just think kind of like, get over that. All right, cool. Like, yeah, take risks. We've got to take risks. Um, and everybody's risks are going to be a little bit different. And that doesn't mean somebody sacrificed more than or less than, or anybody's more worthy of an opportunity or less than an opportunity. It's just your journey. It's your journey. It doesn't have to be like, I think that's something that the, some of the older generation of strength coaches get perturbed at, like somebody doesn't go through the field the same way they did. You know, that's a big issue. Again, I know that was a reason I faced heat early is, oh, this guy's, you know, 20 something coaching pros and thinks he's an expert. And once he leaves API, he'll dry up, you know, and it's like people want young coaches to fail, you know, and then, 
Uh, people get very protective of their jobs because they feel like anytime a coach comes up or makes a name for him or herself, that, that means they're coming for the, it's just a little bit odd. You know, everybody's got to take their own risk. Everybody's on their own path. Chill out. If you're really as humble as you say you are, you realize it's not about you. Do your thing. Yes. Right. And so, yeah, I think that's another key point. Taking risks, getting better at the communication side of things. What's the final topic you think that our field universally really struggles with right now and needs to get over? Bigger is not always better. Um, and, that, and that's actually something when you came and visited us that is that is set with me ever since you said that. As you told me, I don't, I don't when I came down to South Carolina. Maybe. Yes, sir. And I and I remember you. I don't remember your friend's name, but you said, you know, he got the. You were both interns in Nebraska. He got a GA at Georgia, I believe it was. Yeah, it was my buddy Kyle Hobbs. Yeah, and then uh, and you said, you know, he was he, he was basically getting paid to make sure football players went to class. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, the whole just just so everybody else has the context and and Kyle, if you're listening to this, you know, like call me on it if I'm missing part of the story, but Kyle and I were both at Nebraska together and there just weren't any opportunities after that volunteer. Nebraska didn't do paid GA kind of positions. Mm -hmm. I think they had like kind of restricted earnings positions and like, like every NCAA, right. A certain amount of spots have to be allotted to, to minority candidates, all those things. And so it was basically like, Hey, thanks for your service. You're gone, you know, and, and great. That, that wasn't in a mean way. That was just how it was. Right. Like um, coach Dobson at the time was awesome and, and said, Hey, uh, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I'm like this for sure. And he's like, well, we got a guy down in Carbondale, um, Alan Weber, who's now ironically out of the field, but awesome guy, awesome strength coach. <clears throat> and he was uh, at Iowa under coach Doyle for a while. And also uh, under Jared Nesson with me at Southern or shortly before me. And um, coach uh, Dobson was like, you know, this guy's getting ready to leave. You know, I'm happy to give you a recommendation. He did. He was kind enough to and I, you know, I was like, where is Carbondale? Like, what is this school? And like, I didn't really care, but I just wasn't, I didn't know how this whole thing worked. I figured my resume, if somebody saw Southern Illinois, they wouldn't care if I coached a whole lot. Like I just, I'd be considered a small time strength coach, which is so ignorant. You know, like we have the, some of the best coaches in our field are at the smallest schools that nobody's ever heard about, but I didn't know any better. And it wasn't like, I was like, not happy with the situation. I just had never heard of Southern Illinois and I didn't know what to expect. So got on the phone with Jared Neslin. Jared was awesome. Highly critical guy. Didn't spoon feed you anything. Uh, I owe him a lot for my approach in that. Like some people probably think I'm a dick in some capacities uh, when they reach out and ask me a question. But, you know, I just try to say like, hey, happy to answer your question. But like, what have you looked into on your own so far? Right. Like, I, I just don't believe in spoon feeding. I think I'm an awful mentor if I say, yeah, no problem. Like, I'll do everything for you. And I assume you'll learn from it. That's just not going to happen. Um, but my buddy Kyle ended up getting a, uh, a gig down in UGA, Georgia. And Kyle was great. For, I mean, Kyle loved it. So this story I'm about to tell was not Kyle criticizing or being ungrateful for his time in Georgia. It just was what it was. And um, I called him and I was like, you know, Coach Nelson was nice enough. And, and it was the opportunity was unique enough that quarterly or, or different seasons, they, you know, you'd be in charge of different teams. So I was a, an assistant, of course, for uh, basketball and football, but then I'd be in charge of men's and women's tennis, men's and women's golf, the cheerleaders, the dance team, eventually baseball, swimming and diving, yada, yada, yada. So I remember calling Kyle and I'm like, <clears throat> you know, tell me about Georgia, what's going on. Yada, and he's like, dude, I love it. It's great. But like, I'm not getting to coach that much. And I'm like, well, you know, like, I'm sure that's just the nature of it. And he's like, I go, are you at least doing a lot of programming or what have you? And he's like, yeah, I'm hoping, but like, man, 
you know, my main job is to make sure that the linemen and some of the five stars, like get their butt to class and do X, Y, and Z, you know? And I was just like, Oh, like, you know, we're at the small school, like Jared needed help, you know, like a small school, like you got one weight room, you got a ton of different sports. You've got to divide it. Jared would have been an irresponsible coach to imagine that he could do that all on his own, Yeah, you know, but like huge school, like Georgia football, only weight room more than likely all those kinds of things. And so I remember like, man, I'm lucky. Like I, I was crying, you know, metaphorically that Kyle was going to come out of that with his, and Kyle can do whatever he wants with his career. The dude is knows more than most coaches would forget. He's awesome. If you guys have the chance to learn from Kyle Hobbs, look him up. But I, I knew one thing I was really grateful for is I came out of my graduate assistantship, basically having been a head strength coach, having to program. And I think that's something that people miss now. Like they get focused on going to all these big schools and they get focused on going to all these like, oh, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And it's like, mm, you may not get a help. You may not get in the true, quote unquote, in the trenches experience there. Like, and that's where you take all this like, oh, I've read super training and science and practice by Zatsiorski. Like, so did I. And you know what I found when I wrote programs? Two thirds of it was crap, not because of the information was bad in those things, but because I wasn't realistic in how I was trying to apply it. Right. And program after program, you get better. You realize things that are sound good in theory in a book that was translated. Don't always translate into your teams of, you know, 25 apathetic college freshmen, sophomores and juniors who are sexually charged, tired from practice and could care less about your methods for contrast training. You know, and <laughs> that's what that's what people miss. And that's why I laugh yeah. now. I'm like, you know, young coaches need to like get and it's not a young coach as an age. It just means like people that have a chip on their shoulder trying to break in the industry, regardless of age, have to like knock it off with the complexity shit. It's just not where it's at. Do your job well. Find a gig. And I imagine what you're going to say is, you know, make sure you're doing it at any level. It's not always big. It's not just the Bamas, Nebraska's, Georgia's, Florida's of the world. There's so many opportunities. I mean, am I correct in that? Is that was that beneficial to you and your experience? Oh, it was 100%. Because, I mean, about a, about a month after, you know, I, I thought I was going to be staying at South Carolina for the fall, but I um, applied for a job at Catawba College in, in Salisbury, North Carolina, uh, for Coach Jadwin Bignon. And he's at NC State right now. And, and Coach Big was, you know, I was fortunate to get an offer to be in a, an assistant position, and I was going to make you know, less than $600 a month, but that sounded like gold. Um, and my, my mom actually, because I was working at a, a liquor store on the side when I went an intern and, uh, you know, I made a, a decent, you know, enough to pay my rent and everything. And she was like, you know, why do you want to want to leave there? And, you know, you make enough to work at the liquor store to live and go work at some division two school. And I was like, mom, I'm, I'm going to get a chance to program for teams. I'm going to get to run my own lifts and, and really to see, you know, like you just said, to really kind of get in the trenches of this, you know, it was me, coach big coach, Terrence Hurst and coach Mitchell alley. And, you know, Terrence and I were making a little money and Mitch was, you know, luckily he was, um, he was there to help us, even though he's just a volunteer and we ran it every, we ran everything. We had 14 teams and eventually it only even got down to two of us and we were still running the show. And that was, some of the best experience that I could have ever asked for. Um, and, and not to narc on it on any of those big schools, but that's just something you don't get there. And, and, and then coming right here to, to Northern, you know, there's only, there's me, coach Jack Holka, coach Fritz, our boss and coach, um, coach Sam Haroff and, and coach Haroff and coach Fritz have, have mentored us greatly. And they have given, they, Zach and I both have our three teams and coach Fritz has to sign off to make sure the programs are, 
you know, there's sound and that, you know, he, he is, has an idea of what we're doing, but when it comes to running, you know, making the changes and everything that goes with the athletes, whether it's with the head coach, the trainers, whatever, I mean, it's a hundred percent up to us. And I, and I don't think you can, you don't really find that at the big levels. And I'm, I'm, it's, it's, I think it's great. I, I, you know, it's like you just said, bigger's, bigger's not always better. And, um, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I love being at this level. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's huge. And that leads into a next question. And this question actually comes from a listener. Um, a, a young female strength coach wrote in and, and I was asking people, you know, kind of what they want to hear about on the podcast. Cause as you and I talked about there, there's really a lot of great podcasts out there, but I always found that it was just kind of tough to find ones that, that discussed just tough stuff, uncomfortable topics, things that people struggle with. Right. Cause I think people are always a little bit nervous to admit certain things, but one of the questions she asked, and I'm spreading her questions out cause she sent me five really, really good ones. But one I'm going to ask you is, you know, at the age you're at now, and forecasting maybe five, 10 years. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. How do you invest your time properly in coaching while also being able to stay afloat financially, right? Like, so how you're making enough money and managing burnout by overworking yourself, things like that. Cause I, you know, burnout, I mean, balance in our field doesn't exist in most fields. I don't, if you want to be great at anything, there's no such thing as work-life balance. I do think there is a thing uh, called work-life fusion that over the long term, you should be able to create a skill set and opportunities for yourself that allow you to kind of like fuse some things uh, a little bit better where you can take positions or create positions for yourself where it's not quite the sacrifice in the same ways it is at certain points in your career that that you cannot balance those things, but kind of find just just opportunities that marry those values a little bit more. Um, but how do you think right now, you know, I, right now you could make 600 bucks a week or you can make, you know, a, a very small amount of money, relatively speaking, and you're fine, right? Like you, you don't have a, correct me if I'm wrong. Do you have a family you have to support right now? No, no. Uh, nobody wants to be around me for that long. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a crock pot that you have to like support and talk nice to and whatever. Yeah. But like when you, do you, do you want, I imagine you want to have a family someday. Yes or no. And it's okay to say no. Yeah. By all means. yeah I'd, I'd like that. Right. So like to you, like, how do you think you need to start investing your time in order to think like, all right, when I have a wife, kid, five dogs, you know, whatever you're going to have, like, where do you see that going for you? Where do you see that balance being? And and don't worry, Davis, like you don't need to say we don't do this for the money. Coaches, no, no coach gets in it for the money, but I'm going to say something that's going to create a lot of backlash and probably make everybody quit listening to my podcast. Money does matter. Money matters. Like I have a wife. And if I go tell her right now, hey, guess what? Like, I'm going to start training everybody for free um, on top of my non-for-profit that I do. Um, I'm also, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to start giving out books for free on top of the ones we already donate to leukemia, lymphoma, and, and all this, all these foundations. I'm just going to do everything for free. Yeah, but it'll be okay. Like, our lights will stay on. Um, we'll, we'll figure it out. Like, my wife, there's no way, right? Like, that, that's not going to happen. And if you have a baby, there's coaches out there with newborn kids. That kid's got to eat. So I'm going to challenge all of you to please quit saying that we don't do it for the money thing. That's something coaches, I think, say like to wear a badge of honor. But really, then they're whining at conferences that they don't get paid enough or that they get fired. You know, and like we get it. We don't do it for the money. But money is important as a field. We have got to quit saying that. Don't say it just to prove it. Like money's important. You got to pay for your loved ones. You got to pay the bills. And if you don't make money, you're not eating. And if you don't take care of yourself, you're not taking care of anybody else. So coach Davis, enough of my ranting on that. 
how do you imagine yourself navigating this stuff in the future? You know, and, and I think that that's something fortunate to have a lot of friends in the, the business world. Um, just because right now I, I'm really simple and, and I, I think I would do that even if I made a lot more money. I, you know, my weekends when I, I, when you were talking about the fusion earlier, you know, the work-life fusion, um, it's Zach and I, the other graduate assistant here, we have an agreement that when we get home, unless we just truly need to rant about something, we just don't talk about work. You know, I mean, I love that. You, you know, you know how it is. You know, everyone works the 12 hour days. We're no different than anybody else. You know, um, but as soon as you get home, like we want to, we want to talk about what's going on, on on our Netflix shows or girls or, or whatever else is going on. Let's just talk about that stuff. You know, let's talk about the good steak we're eating tonight. I don't know. Something else. Um, I like, Hey, I like that. Yeah. By the way, if you need, if anybody needs a new Netflix show to watch, cause that's something that, you know, I used to not watch TV when I was in my high and mighty every moment's productive phase, you know, like I never watched TV. Uh, but now my wife and I watch at least like one episode a night just to chill out, you know what I mean? Before we're going to bed and then we read in bed and whatever. But uh, if you want to get mind blanked, the House on Haunted Hill series on Netflix, and I'm not into like goose or ghouls, goblins, all that, but that is a psychological mind dump that will screw you up and is super entertaining to it. So if anybody needs a good show and we're recording this in October, it'll come out well, just after October, it'll come out a little later but it's going to stay on Netflix. The house, I think it's like the haunting of Hill house or the house on haunted Hill. It's the, uh, it's the series, but that's a good one, but go ahead. By all means, the good steak we're eating tonight. Yeah. You don't talk about work. What other strategies have you implemented? Yeah. Just, I mean, uh, and it's like, and it's, it's fine. Finding something that you like, like Zach loves to do everything outdoors. He likes hunting, riding his bike. So we make sure we do those things outside of work. You know, I, I love going to the, you can call me weird, but I love going to the movies by myself and just getting lost in a movie for three hours and thinking about absolutely nothing but what's going on with that. And that really helps me cope with everything that's going on at work or life or outside of that. And, um, and I think that's a, a good strategy that we have. And it's, and I, I've been using that for a little bit over a year now is just making sure once you're outside and you know, you've done your due diligence for the day is let's put that away and let's do other things now. Um, but here's the question I'll ask you, and I'll ask you on behalf of some of our listeners. How does that make you a better coach? Not only that, let me rephrase. How does that make you a better professional? How does doing that, how does like, you know, in, implementing some of those incubation periods and, and mind you right now, you've talked about recreation stuff, which is huge. That's one part of the equation, mm -hmm. but I'm still going to hold you accountable for answering the, how do you plan to navigate the financial side in the future? So with, with the financial stuff is it's, it's all about, planning it out. I, I've been through, you know, it was like you and I just talked about earlier, everyone who, you know, med students and, and lawyers that come out these great student loans that they're, they're coming out and they're having to find extra ways to work money. And if you want to do what you want to do bad enough, you're going to find a way to, to find, to be able to support yourself financially, whether that's going up and picking an extra job at the time, or whether that's making sure that you, you find the job that's worth it, or you, you know, and there's been coaches before, like you've hit on your podcast before that have just found that, you know, they're, they're not happy enough with because the money does matter. And if, and, you know, I, I'm hoping that I'm able to stay in this field for the rest of my life. Of course, you know, every coach is going to say that. Um, but I, it, I've already not necessarily, I don't have the assets currently to start preparing, but I'm fortunate to have some friends who work in investments 
Um, and I and I and we've had conversations already about when the time comes and there's enough money there to make sure that I can make my dollars stretch. And then practices now that what you do, what I learned from other interns about, you know, just managing the, the weekly funds of, you know, if, if you go out and have a beer with your friends on the weekend, understand that might be need to only be a once a month thing or making sure you're not even though, oh, I just went to you know, a fast food joint and spent like eight or nine bucks like that eight or nine bucks. If you go out four or five times a week, turns in almost 50 bucks. Um, yeah. So starting those practices now. And that way, when you get in a relationship, because as soon as the relationship starts, I mean, you're a married man, you know exactly that that drives up the cost of everything. Um, and I think, or just you know, I'll tell you what else, Coach. I don't mean to cut you off. Giving back uh, drive you know drives up the cost of everything. Yeah. You know, I I had no idea, but like when I wrote my book, like the amount of money, like I've talked about this before, like I had to take out my wife and I had to take out a loan to make that a reality because it was so published. To do the course, I had to take out a loan. I remember one time, like. I paid for, there was some seminar when I was in uh, Carbondale, uh, some, something was going on in St. Louis. It was like 800 bucks. And like, I didn't make, you know, my stipend as a GA, I think it was like 10,000 a year before taxes, right? Like when you're a grad assistant, like thankfully school is getting paid for, which is a huge blessing uh, by the university given the, the GA, but you're not making much money. But I just remember there were so many good coaches and I was like, how am I going to make this work? You know, there's a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, it was a lot of like, I think I found like four or five things to sell on Craigslist. I did whatever, but you know what? I never regretted going to that clinic because I made that, like what, what that cost me gave me so much back in return. I had like four or five ideas from that clinic for more veteran strength coaches that like were easily worth double what I paid for that clinic. And so that's something that like I challenge coaches on too, because like they think a lot of people can just like give and do this and do that and sacrifice themselves. Like you have no idea what it like, like if you were to ask Mike Boyle and he'd never tell you, you know, cause it's none of your business or mine, frankly. Um, but if you were to ask him like, what did it cost to open your business? Maybe he would tell you what did it cost like Anthony Renner to get their podcast going. What did it cost to get their certification stuff going? Ask Mark for say, ask any of these people what it costs to get stuff going. You would like choke, choke. And I remember my wife, like I was scared in this. I'm joking, right? Like, I was scared. Like when I told my wife, I was like, yeah, I, need re- I, I want to write this book. I need to write this book. I think it's something important here. But I told her what it was going to cost. Like we had never spent that kind of money before ever, you know, but when I asked a good friend, I said, Hey, like what, if you wrote a book, like what was something you chinced on that you wish you wouldn't have? He's like editing, man, like editing. And I remember I reached out to like a good editor guy had written um, a story on me and, and training my NFL athletes. I was like, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What's your rate? And he said, I mean, it's just like, Oh my God, you know, and, but that's an investment. And so where I'm going with this and you touched on it beautifully is like, you guys got to understand there's a difference between a cost and an investment. Even if you don't have money right now, even if you don't, and I gave plasma, I used to give plasma for like money. Like I donate plasma, but I'd still put $25 in like an index fund or I'd give 20, my dad's a financial advisor. I'd be like, Hey, like, what can I put this in? I didn't even have a 401k. Like I had no benefits as a strength coach until I think I was like 28. The the place that I worked for 27, 28, like had marginal health care. You know, it didn't cover that much. Um, I had no benefits, didn't have a 401k or a match. So like I had to help my dad who is a financial advisor, help me figure out how to open one of those things. And we're hosting an event <laughs> in Atlanta on January 19th and the 20th. That's about a lot of this stuff. And my old man's going to be there and answer coaches like investing questions, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. 
you are going to have to put up with this terrible old man jo- or like dad jokes. I mean, they're awful, Davis. Like they're they're abysmal. But the guy gives sound investing advice, so I you know I tell him I'll keep him out of the nursing home yeah. until he goes completely senile. Um, but I think you hit on two huge points and well beyond your years, which is why I don't think age matters in this field. I think perspective is so much more important than age. You talking about the importance of recreation, which my friend Brian Mann also talks about. Um, and then you also talking about just finances. And, and I think coaches, I would challenge you guys understand the difference between a cost and investment. Um, we've all been there. Everybody's got to invest in something. You likely paid $2 and 50 cents to five bucks for a cup of coffee every single day, most days of the week. Don't, don't tell somebody you can't afford a $400 clinic, you know, or, um, a book or, you know, the opportunity to go, I've paid coaches to go shadow them because I value their time. Even if they said, no, I don't want that money. I'm like, no, like I'm a, you're a professional. This is what, and that's just how my parents raised me. You know, I think that's important. Um, but anyway, I, I think those things are huge. And so I applaud you. You're well ahead of where I was. At, at your age, thinking about those things, I was still in the extremist phase. Cause I mean, I grew up during that era of like first in last out, you know, I'm not old by any means I'm 32, but everybody was like, you got to do this. You got to do that. There's so much extremism. There still is. Hopefully we can weed that out and and become a true profession instead of this kind of like, I don't know, <laughs> this, this uh, aggressive or quote unquote passionate field. It's time to become a profession. Um, and formalize our behavior along with that term. But yeah. any other things you you kind of want to add there that were huge to you? Yeah, I mean, I think you've made a lot of good points and not to harp on it too long. It's just that I, I meet a lot of coaches who almost just seem like they're they're too proud to, to get help or something if they can. So like, like when you said donating plasma, that's hilarious to me because I've done that plenty of times. Um, and and I don't, that sucks too. It's just a weird place. Yeah, does it, isn't it? Like you go into those places, it's weird. Yeah. You're around like, it, it's so funny. It's, it's like college kids and homeless people. And yeah. And like some of them are getting, after they go through the screening or going out and smoking weed yeah. and then coming back in. Yeah. So like they got to get screened, right? Cause you got to make sure that like the person doesn't have any lack of a better term contaminants or, yeah. you know, that they're like disease free or whatever. And you're seeing, so they, they tell you like, Hey, after you go through this, stay in here, like, you know, whatever. There's people just out there, yeah. they go smoke a blunt and they come back. I'm like, dude, your plasma is going to be used to make medicine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird. And it smells like your grandma's old basement oh combined with like a small controlled burn. Yeah. Like when you drive by a field and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I need the money. So let me squeeze the ball. Yeah, just, yeah, squeeze the crap out of that ball. And, you know, it's, it's, you know I met coaches who are, you know, they're, they're too proud to, to use like government aid for food stamps or something. Like, I mean, those are why, those are why programs are, and not to knock anyone on any kind of stuff like that, but just. No, it's just, everybody's got to do what they got to do at the time being. When I I found out that I could get $200 a month for groceries, help it out. I mean, I was eating like a God (laughs) and I just, and, but that, that helps so much right there. And you talk about, you're trying to take stress away from the workplace. That's a real thing. For, for you just got to get creative. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to the guys at, at Airbnb, I mean, listen to their story. It's unbelievable. Like to get out of debt, they sold cereal. They sold cereal to get out of debt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's unreal. So like, just got to be creative. Yeah. But that goes back to what we talked about earlier. This is a field that like money is a very uncomfortable subject. Uh, you know, I want to tell people I'm broke and I don't have money, but I don't want to go make money. And then if somebody is making money, they're a sellout, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, let's get on with it. All right, coach. Well, we're going to wrap up with 
one uh, kind of fire round questions. Pretty simple. All right. Um, I'll set you up for success, but I'm big. Like to me, conscious coaching, the art of coaching is not just about communication, psychosocial stuff, all that. It's also about the training. Like you just got to be a well-rounded coach. That's what it's about. So I'm going to ask you a couple of training questions. It's really simple. Let's imagine you have a uh, 18-year-old female basketball player, mm-hmm. right? She has a previous uh, ACL injury. Mm-hmm. And I asked something, you know what? I asked this pretty, let's, let's rephrase this because Matt Jordan, this kind of feeds into him in his episode. Let's say you got a, a 15 year old swimmer, mm-hmm. right? We're still going to go female swimmer, 15 years old, hasn't had much experience weight training. The only experience she did have was a sport coach that made her do really aggressive kind of dry land training that featured <laughs> high volumes of depth jumps, burpees, battle ropes. You know the story, right? We've all heard stuff like this. So a 15 year old female swimmer, no real weight room experience. What are five exercises that are going to be in that young woman's program and why? Well, um, can I, can I list what they are and then go back to why? No doubt. Yeah, yeah, but you got to do it in less than five minutes. So, I mean, if I can, if I can get you to bend, if I can get you to push and if I can get you to pull and if I can get some kind of hinge and then if I can get some, some form of extension, um, we're going to be pretty sound. And I, and I, I, you hear a lot of people always ask not to, to get away from the topic real quick, but so many different, yeah, cause keep in mind, yeah. clock's running. So, many different, seconds so many different sports. How do you program? Well, majority of them are just simple power sports. So if I can, if I, you know, I've got a 15 year old kid who's done a lot of crazy things that may or may not have been unnecessary. If I can just get him to squat properly, just be her or excuse me, her, sorry. You better be gender sensitive. Okay. Yeah. On this podcast, I'll kick yes, it off. Sir. So if I can get her to squat correctly and just so I can just build a, a movement pattern and just the, the ability to develop that correctly, that's a huge win right there. So if I can do that, because that correlates to, to you know, becoming a better athlete, help them in their sport, produce power, things like that, simple things. So what kind of squat, just so that listener, like be very specific. What are you starting her off with? What's your first progression? My first progression with a 15-year-old would be a goblet squat, a 15-year-old girl. Perfect. So I would, I would, if if I can get her up to a certain amount of uh, certain weight and dumbbell, then you can move along to a barbell. But I would start that with a dumbbell. Yep. Uh, All right. Exercise number two. Your minute and a half. Okay. Minute. So I would, I would do some form of press, and I, and I would, I would do a more than likely a dumbbell military press, and just so, and it would be a strict. I would probably just start seated in the beginning. That way, I don't have to worry about posture and stuff like that, and just to get develop that as well. And then I would, I, if I can get some form of pull, so I would, I would look at just a simple thing, maybe a, a dumbbell incline row, keeping it very simple, you know, develop, developing those postural muscles, and and that way we're not getting too wild. I know I'm blowing people's minds right now. And then, a, no, right now what somebody's what somebody's thinking is, well, why wouldn't you do a lap pull down because they use their lats when swimming, and don't you want to be sport specific? You should just train lats. That's what you're getting right now. Two minutes and five seconds in. So we got a we got a goblet squat in a row. Good. Go I, got, I got my press too. My uh, my dumbbell dumbbell military. Yeah, press, yeah. Yeah. And then I would I would you know you you've got to have a hinge because um, I always you always like to use TL, TLUH is always what goes through my mind. And with that, I would just do a, a keep keeping right in there simple with the dumbbell RDL. And it doesn't matter whether I'd have to start off with a body weight and just teach her how to, to even because the concept of hinging is can be wild with some athletes. 
but if maybe if all I can work up to is a five pound dumbbell with that day, I've seen grown football players use 15 pound on RDL, 15 pound dumbbell RDLs because they have no idea what it is. But that way I can start, yeah. start to develop that way. Um, and then, <clears throat> and then I'm some form of extension. So before all that, just teaching, even if I, I'm just working on a simple form of jumping and a simple form of landing mechanics using two feet in the beginning, not trying to get single leg. Let's be able to jump on two feet before we can get on one foot and then just learning how to land properly. So if I'm only having her jump a few inches in the air and that way she can learn those things and be able to produce force, especially because girls don't, they don't recruit for, you know, they, those muscle fibers don't fire very fast, but just mastering that in the beginning, especially in those young years. Um, you know, and I think those would be really good things to do with uh, someone like that. Beautiful. Three minutes and 45 seconds, give or take a few, because I started the clock a little late. I love it. And uh, coach, real quick, we're not ending yet, but what's your email? My email is uh, davis.conley at wolves.northern.edu. Go Wolves. Longest email. <laughs> Go yeah. Wolves. So I'm going to put that in the show notes for everybody that wants to call and argue with you about those five movements. Please do. <laughs> because, Please do. Yeah, that's it. That's always how it goes. And guys, that's something we're going to do on this program from time to time. We're going to do, I call it the five and five, and it's just a freestyle. Now, listen, like Davis did an awesome job, awesome job. And what you guys as listeners always got to take into account is like context matters. So if you're that person out there, that's like, well, I didn't hear about a unilateral lower body exercise. Coach Conley used that, right? He gave five examples of things that will always be in the program. And he did a wonderful job, push, pull, squat, hinge, you know, all those things. So uh, there will be episodes where I playfully fire back at people and say, okay, you said dumbbell RDL. Why not a kettlebell RDL? But like, we've got to like, I'm doing that kind of tongue in cheek because our field falls in love too much with like exercises. Hey coach, saw you doing a lunge. Why not do a rear foot elevated split squat? Oh, well in week four, we actually do a rear foot elevated split squat. Like I'm trying to train coaches to not take something and react to it right away, but to think more deeply about it. Um, but you did an awesome job, man. I appreciate you being a good sport too. Only three of these questions were even remotely discussed ahead of time. You did an awesome job of freestyling and that's what we want to do. Um, so coach, repeat the email one more time, just in case anybody wants to reach out to you or tell them the best way to contact you if you're on social media, any of that. Yeah. My, uh, my email again is davis.conley at wolves.northern.edu. Go wolves again. Uh, and then, um, probably the best way would be, I would say probably my, my Instagram it's, uh, at coach D Conley, C O N L E Y. Uh, that, that would be the best way, um, just to go. If you, if you can find me on there and you can, you know, just tell me my five exercises are dumb. That'd be the best way. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. And guys, if you want to, if you want to learn more about the event that I was talking about in January, um, again, just reach out to info at artofcoaching.com. Or if you're on the newsletter, that's where it's going to be announced first. So if you um, if you're not on the newsletter, <laughs> reach out again to info at team of art or info at artofcoaching.com, and I'll send you the link. That's where everything is always going to be announced first. If you're not going to get a chance to come out to Atlanta, we are going to videotape and record the course, um, and we're going to turn that into something that you guys can use anytime, anywhere in the future. Probably come out mid 2019 ish. No set date on that yet, but again, the newsletters where you're always going to hear about this stuff first and keep the questions coming, not only to myself, but Coach Conley. You have somebody in the field um, and, and age does not matter in this field. Perspective and a willingness to help does. And I thank you for your time, man. Thanks for being so honest. 
got a lot of topics in and guess what? We did it under an hour. So I appreciate you, Coach. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Coach. I really appreciate your time and, and thank you for everything you do for the field. God bless, brother. Talk soon. Yes, sir. Thank you.